and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is one that I am especially proud to feature on Staff Picks because this is the absolute definition of a movie that at one time was a fairly big deal, but it's completely unknown now. And it really needs more love so people can go and uh, recognize how good it was. And the movie I'm talking about is the 1983 comedy Max Dugan Returns, starring Jason Robards and a uh, very young Matthew Broderick. And uh, this is one of those movies I've been dying to feature on staff picks for the longest time. Just because, like I said, it was a big deal when I was a kid. In fact, almost everybody I know from like the 80s that kind of knows older movies. When I said I was doing Max Dugan Returns, what I did is I posted a list on Facebook of all these old movies I wanted to do on staff picks. And almost every one of these old children of the 80s commented on Max Dugan. They're like, oh my God, Max Dugan Returns. I haven't thought of that movie in like 30 years. So I'm very excited that I actually found someone who knows this movie and likes it as much as I do, which again, I, I don't know if this movie was even available on DVD. I don't know if they even released it. Yeah, you, you kind of have to be very creative if you want to go find it these days. Uh, so let's see, let's get, let's, uh, let's bring my guest on. Um, I've had her on before. Uh, we talked about Quick Change, which is one of my favorite 90s comedies. Uh, she went to high school with me. We grew up together. She's had some really interesting jobs. I know she was an opera singer at one point, I believe. She's worked in cannabis sales. So she's a really interesting person, and I love having her on the show. So welcome back to Staff Picks, Celia Curran. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for liking and knowing Max Dugan Returns. I love this movie. This uh, this is definitely a childhood movie for me. Um, I, I I probably mentioned in in the la- the, our last podcast together that um, I get my love of movies from my mother, uh, and uh, you know we we she took me to see the Goonies, like took me to see a lot of movies when, we, when I was a kid. So this is definitely a, a mom movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I I I I've, I've never remembered a time when I didn't know this movie existed. Um, so it's just always been part of part of my childhood. Yeah, it's the same for me. Like I've said many times on Staff Picks before, like I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies as a kid. So we'd always rent these tame PG movies, and and for some reason this movie ended up in our house so many times, and I don't even know why. Like it's not the funniest movie or the best movie ever, but it's just like a movie that kind of grows on you. And I remember just all the time, if we couldn't find something to rent, it was like, yeah, just get Max Dugan returns again. So, so we probably rented this from these mom and pop video stores like 20 times as kids. It was always at our house. I think for us, we probably like taped it off of Showtime or HBO or something. Um, yeah. Cause I remember seeing it more than once when I was a kid and then not again for many, 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 many years. And then I think I came across it on like Amazon several years ago and watched it again. And I was like, I had forgotten how much I loved it and how cute it was. And the thought occurred to me that like, even though we watched it as kids, it's, it's not exactly a children's movie, but it's possible that our parents were fooled by the animated opening. Okay. The one thing I remember 
about this movie. And again, I'm assuming that none of my listeners know this movie. So we're going to have to delve into it pretty deeply. But the one thing I always remember about Max Dugan Returns is that everyone I knew thought it was a sequel because of the name. Oh, Max Dugan Returns. So was there a Max Dugan? And I was always like, no, it's just a standalone. But I remember this being a huge point of confusion at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I also completely forgotten that this was written by Neil Simon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Neil Simon. OK. Neil Simon. You mentioned that uh, he's a famous playwright. He ended up writing a bunch of movies as well. And I believe this is the last movie he ever did. And again, I'm not assuming any of my listeners know this movie. So we're going to have to describe it for you. It just Max Dugan Returns really is a play that's just been filmed as a movie. There's four characters. There's like three locations. It's such a simple little premise, but y you can absolutely tell it was written by a playwright. Yeah, absolutely. The, the dialogue is so snappy. And throughout this whole movie, you just hear that quick witted, you know, just it's it's so well written. Yeah. And that's going to be the fun thing in this episode. We're going to be describing this movie to you who, and you've probably never seen it before. And we're going to say, oh, the dialogue here is so great. And you're just going to have to kind of take our word for it, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not sure how many specific dialogue notes I uh, wrote down, but um, <laughs> we'll see. Oh, it's going to be a wild adventure, Celia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so do you know, I, I don't know much too much about Neil Simon. He's a little before my time, and I don't really watch plays much to begin with. So I don't really know much about him. Can you explain to people who he is if they don't really know? Uh, yeah. So uh, Neil Simon is a, a famous, I believe, New York um, playwright, American playwright, but wrote a lot of stuff that was, um, yeah, he was born in the Bronx. Uh, and um, it, interestingly enough, on a side note, in his early career, Matthew Broderick was in a lot of Neil Simon stuff like Biloxi Blues was another Neil Simon um and so, yeah, so definitely known for uh, uh, as a as a as a playwright. Uh, he wrote The Odd Couple um, and uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, which is also a, a, a famous movie of, of, I think, the 80s oeuvre. Um, and yeah, just just really, really fantastic playwright. I think um, a lot of I think he was Jewish. So there's probably a lot of those themes in his works as well. Um but uh, yeah, it, Google says he wrote more than 30 plays and nearly the same number of movie screenplays, mostly film adaptations of his plays. He has received more combined Oscar and Tony Award nominations than any other writer. Okay, good to know. And so he very much was a big deal. And again, I think this was his last movie, if I recall. I wouldn't be surprised, yes. Okay, and the other thing about this movie is that uh, he was married to an actress named Marsha Mason, I believe, and they did a bunch of movies together. And this is their last collaboration. And then they got divorced. Oh. So this movie, this movie ruined a lot of things for Neil Simon. Oh my gosh, interest! I had no idea. Hmm. Yeah, but that does bring us back to one thing that I wanted to bring up here, that this movie is not a modern movie. If you're going to go seek it out or if you remember it somehow... This is the type of movie that just does not exist anymore. 
And I know that's a phrase that you hear a lot, but there's just no equivalent to this anymore. It's just a stage play for actors, very breezy, like not especially funny, but just kind of witty and quick-witted. And it's got a nice message where you feel good at the end. Like you're not going to sit there and laugh through the whole movie. And it's not a romantic comedy either. Like there's not an especially strong romantic lead subplot. It's It's just this light, breezy, early 80s comedy that for some reason everyone my age remembers and seems to love. Yeah, it's funny. It it is. I think they they try to make it a romantic comedy, but like in watching this now with my twenty twenty one eyeballs, I'm like, Dalton Sutherland's a creep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I showed it to my wife for the first time, and she said the exact same thing. She's like, "This guy's a stalker." Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're we're gonna get into the plot here, and uh, yeah, this is a it's a very simple plot. I expect this is gonna be a very short podcast. Again, this is just a movie that I feel very strongly about. But there is one more thing I want to mention, and this will mean more to me than it probably will to you, I would assume. And and that is, uh, this is a movie that anybody who follows baseball or knows anything about baseball history should know. They should know Max Dugan Returns because it's kind of important. Uh, would you know why I would say that? I'm guessing probably not. You're not a baseball fan or the 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 batting coach that came out to work with Matthew Broderick, I assume. Yeah, this movie's actually got a fairly strong baseball subplot going through it, and it, it involves a very legendary hitting coach named Charlie Lau. Now, this won't mean a lot to everybody, but if you're a baseball fan, you probably know who Charlie Lau is or was. He was one of the most famous, uh, what, hitting coaches of all time. Pretty much all the early 80s hitters in Major League Baseball emulated him to some extent. And they actually got him into this movie to teach Matthew Broderick how to hit. And then, for some reason, Charlie Lau actually stars in the movie, too, for some reason. <laughs> so, Anyway, just for baseball history, I think it's it's kind of sad that this movie is not better known because it's it's kind of neat that it has a, this big baseball subplot through it featuring a really famous person. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and it, I, I, I never really correlate those two because for me it's more about the the relationships in the movie but um you are absolutely right there is a a very big baseball theme throughout this movie um and another interesting tidbit is i believe this is matthew broderick's first film it is yeah he was a uh, stage actor in new york did a lot of stage work and they brought him over out to hollywood to do movies he did max dugan returns as his first movie and i think war games might have been his second movie War Games, I think, was third, and I have a funny War Games tie-in to all of this when we get we get through this later, which I'm sure you probably have the same thought at the same part in the movie. <laughs> um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but the, it just, yeah, they it, it really got me thinking. I was thinking about Matthew Broderick this morning and just what an incredible talent he was because within the first few years of his career, he puts out this he puts out War Games and he puts out Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which are like three of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, it's really astounding. And although the thing that jumps out at me in this movie is I don't know how they made that kid look like a baseball player. Because, you know, there's no way Matthew Broderick ever played baseball. No, he looks like a like a schlubby New York, you know, teen. Like, yeah, he... he but it was, I mean, obviously he, he, I think he hit, looked like he was doing the, the hitting. So I guess, I guess maybe he actually did get a coaching. from. 
Yeah, I mean, I played baseball all my life, all the way up into college, and so I can identify when an actor knows what they're doing in a baseball movie and when they don't. Like, in, in Major League, that's the best, because all those actors clearly knew what they're doing. But, like, Matthew Broderick is a theater kid from New York. There's no way he ever grew up playing baseball. No way. But even in my baseball-trained eye, he looks exactly like he knows what he's doing in this movie. And I'm shocked. Yeah, yeah. Well, either that or he's just an excellent actor. He just is. <laughs> he's that good. <laughs> hey there, this is Mario, just inserting a little note into the podcast long after we recorded it. Uh, so I did some research, and it turns out that I was correct that Matthew Broderick does know what he's doing when he plays baseball. But I was incorrect about why. So it turns out he, uh, when he was a theater kid in New York, he played in one of these Broadway softball leagues or Broadway baseball leagues for many years. And he was very well known in there. So he clearly has a lot of baseball slash softball experience and clearly does know what he is doing. So I was half right. Anyway, with that, back to the episode. Okay, so here we go. We're going to go into Max Dugan Returns. Again, a movie that... People thought it was a sequel for some reason, but it's not. It's just a standalone Neil Simon play with uh, four actors. Let's see. We have Marsha Mason. She plays a harried English teacher in California. And then we got her son, Matthew Broderick. And then there is a police detective played by Donald Sutherland, who's kind of her romantic interest. And then we have Marsha Mason's father, Max Dugan, played by the famous Jason Robards. And that's really the entire cast. Am I forgetting anybody? Well, we do have a couple of really fun bit actresses that pop up in this movie that um, like her neighbor. Uh, so her neighbor, um, I didn't write down the actress's name, but she was the woman who played Mrs. Stimler in Splash. The, the you know, who got hit by lightning and, and wears her bra on the outside of her shirt. <laughs> I think she's also in Greece, right? She is. She plays Blanche in in Greece as well. And so, yeah, when I when I was like, oh my god, that's yeah, that's you know, I had to look her up. And and then another little um, hilarious bit is in in the very very beginning um, of the movie. I mean, we we clearly we find out that our our lead heroine has really bad luck, like really really bad luck. And um, so one of the other um, there's another fun bit actor, actress named Billy Bird that pops up in the very beginning. And I, I don't know if you recognize her. She's an older woman with black hair and she's, she plays an older woman in just about every movie ever. Um, yeah. I know the, the first lady's name is Dodie Goodman. That's her name. Yes. I don't know Billy Bird, but yeah, they're, they're the two like comedic side actresses. And that's like the entire cast of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, although, although, I don't know if you caught this, but again, we're explaining this movie to people who have never seen it before, but I don't know if you know who David Morse is. Did you see David Morse's name in the credits? Yes, yes, I saw his, um, I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, who is this? Who, what, what character is he? I didn't, I didn't recognize him. Okay, so I'll explain when we get there where he is. You, you never see his face, but you do hear his voice. Ah, okay, great. Okay, so let's go into the plot here. Although, first, I have to talk about the elephant in the room when it comes to Max Dugan Returns. And that elephant is, this movie is impossible to find these days. Oh, no, we, we bought it on, I mean, you can rent it on Amazon. Wait, you can rent it on Amazon? 
when I when I first started researching it, you couldn't. Oh yeah, that must have just recently changed because we actually had it downloaded. My husband found the file, and then somehow it got lost or he deleted it, and so we ended up renting it on Amazon for four dollars. Wow, that's huge. Okay, I take it back. You guys do need to go see this movie. It is not impossible to find. <laughs> Hooray! Hooray! Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna tell people that if they wanted to watch this, they were gonna have to find some, you know, shady Chinese Putlocker's website or, uh, or some alternative method, or, or do as I did, of course, which is quote unquote tape it off VHS thirty years ago and suddenly find your VHS copy. <laughs> but no, no, you don't have to do that now. You can legitimately watch Max Dugan Returns for I think three ninety nine on Amazon. So there you go. All right. With that, let's get back to the storyline again. Very simple plot. It's just basically a story about poor characters, people that just don't have any money. It starts with a uh, very poor school teacher and her teenage son, Mike. And uh, Celia, I will let you lead us off. How does the movie start? Well, the movie starts with um, them just trying to get out and get to school. And Mike, uh, you know, is making breakfast. And they're in they're in a um, not, you know, they're in a small house that you know clearly um they clearly don't have a lot of money but they make they make the best out of what they have and then yeah they're they're running to school and she gets into this like jalopy of a car uh that literally looks like it's about to fall apart with you know black jetted you know ash coming out of the the muffler and and uh she she is able to uh, I mean you expect to hear the muffler like like along the street like that it's that it's that type of car and she she gets she gets her son to school and there's a small subplot of her you know worried about like Mike hanging out with the wrong kids at school um you know somebody dealing drugs or getting kicked out she's you know so she clearly she's worried about him yeah he's a juvenile delinquent juvenile delinquent who happens to love baseball go figure um, and, uh, so it looks like he's in high school and she's teaching, I think, middle school. And so she's got test papers in her car, but she has to go pick up Mike's shoes from the shoe store. And in the 20 seconds she's in the shoe store. Now she does happen to leave her keys in the car, but in the 20 seconds she's picking up her shoes, somebody comes in and steals her car with her exam papers in the car. So she's not having a good day. Yeah, so so as you said, she's basically the poorest school teacher ever. They live in a little dump in uh, what Venice Beach, California, which has some dumpy areas, and I know that because I live pretty close to there. So yeah, so she's having a rough day, and her car gets stolen, including all the student test papers inside, and so she's already having a bad day, and now her car gets stolen, and this will set the plot for the rest of the movie. Like who wants who wants to seal that piece of shit? I have no idea, but uh, yeah, I mean, clearly we got to, we got to set up. Oops, sorry about that. We have to set up strife for our, our poor, our poor, you know, um, mom who we come to find out, I think is a widow and uh, yeah. And her, her students, her students are, are less than thrilled to find out that the exam papers have also been stolen. <laughs> Yeah, so this is just a really rough day for poor Nora McPhee. That's her name, uh, the teacher's name. And I believe the car, I actually wrote it down. It was a 64 Volvo, this big old gray boat that she's driving in 1983. So it was it was not in the best of condition. 
so yeah, she's she's a widow. Her husband has died, and again, she's just harried and frazzled, and and doesn't especially have a, a big sense of humor. Her life is just kind of rough, and it all goes wrong here when her car gets stolen and she loses everything. And and oh oh, and also did did you catch the cameo at the start of the movie, Celia? Did you see um. One of the friends at school, one of Mike's friends, Matthew Broderick's friends. Did you happen to catch who that actor is? No, I must have missed it. That's young Kiefer Sutherland making his movie debut. Oh, I did also see him in the credits on IMDb. And then, you know, clearly it didn't stick with me and I didn't, um, I, I wasn't paying enough attention. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, the very start of the movie, you see Mike, the little juvenile delinquent hanging out with his buddies smoking outside the school. And one of his buddies is Kiefer Sutherland. So this is not only Kiefer Sutherland's acting debut, it's one of the rare movies he acted in with his father, Donald Sutherland, who plays the cop. That's probably how he got the role. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, (laughs) uh, yeah. So the teacher's car gets stolen, and as she's sitting in the shoe store filling out a police report, this is where she meets the third of the four characters in the movie, Donald Sutherland, who plays a cop named Brian Costello. Yes, and uh, I guess it's Brian's job. Brian is is like the stolen car guy. So anytime anybody has a stolen car, he's the one that's on the case. And he comes to interview her um, and uh, seems seems like immediately charmed by her. Like she's having the worst day. She's just frazzled. She's upset. and And he's like flirting with her and wants to, I mean, cl- clearly, like he's already into her. It's... It, it, it is. I think it's too, for me, again, with my 2021 eyes, it's a little too convenient, but, you know, it's a stage play. It's a meet cute. You got to kind of, you know, think of it that way. Yeah. And my wife said the same thing. It's like this cop will meet the teacher and they'll flirt and they learn they both like reading old English novels. And by the end of the day, they're dating. And so my wife's like, wow, that's a one day romance. That was that was real quick. Yeah, that's that's a stage play for you. <laughs> okay, and here's where I drop the David Morse cameo on you again. If people don't know David Morse, very famous actor in the 80s and 90s, even in the 2000s, has a very distinct voice. Usually plays a cop or an airline pilot or a soldier or someone in charge. Anyway, he's the first police officer that interviews Nora McPhee when she loses her car. You don't see his face, you just hear his voice. But it's clearly him if you listen. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, now I almost want to go back and watch it again, but I think my rental has run out. (laughs) Well, I would advise you to uh, download it and save it, but that might be frowned upon by the legal experts who listen to the show. Oh, no, we've never done anything like that ever. Exactly. I just tape all my movies off VHS back in the 80s. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. so, so. So, okay. So explain their whirlwind romance. So she loses her car. The cop feels bad for her and he gives her a gift to make up for her car. Yeah, he um, so he takes her to school. So she's she's in school. She's teaching. And I think her she and Mike walk home and he shows up with a motorbike. Yeah. So so that's his gift. He has recovered this motorbike personally from like a police auction recovery lot or whatever. He built it up and he's giving it to her. So that's his gift for this poor frazzled school teacher, a motorbike. So now she's going to drive that to school instead of her car. Yes. And and so this is the evening of the, the first day that they have met. And he takes her to, like, learn how to drive this thing, not in a parking lot, 
you know, not, not, not anywhere where they won't, you know, encounter, say, other drivers. No, she's just going to go take right off down the street. No problem. I got this. <laughs> yes, a very convoluted plot. Their first date is, is him teaching her to ride a motorcycle down Venice Beach Boulevard. Yes, and then on to, uh, to top it off, he ends up like, like at the end of it, he's he's driving, like in the you know the next scene, and he they, he he witnesses some crime and like goes to arrest and chase somebody, and she's all like, ah. <laughs> instead of being freaked out that she's gone on a police chase. I don't know. Again, maybe this is this is what I get for for viewing this with with the 2021 lens. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, again, my wife said the same thing. If you haven't seen this movie before, it's a little convoluted because we have to introduce these characters quickly and you have to get these characters together and you have to establish that this cop, Donald Sutherland, he's a bit of a badass. He's really good at his job. He's very tenacious. And this will come in handy in the plot later. Yeah. Okay, and so I was going to say, so, so the one thing we learn here at the start of the movie is that when Mike and his mom are without a car, they start talking about, you know, why they have no money, why their financial situation is so bad. And we learn that not only is she a widow, but her father abandoned her when she was a kid. And her son, Mike, is like, why don't you just borrow some money to get a new car? And she's like, I can't. I have no relatives. I have no family. Her father, Max Dugan, abandoned them when she was nine years old. And so that's kind of the crux of the movie here. Mike doesn't know anything about his grandfather because he's never met him. And this will become very important to the plot very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she's, you know, obviously it's 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 a, a, a sore spot for her. And she moved on and clearly doesn't want to involve her father in her son's life at all because he wasn't in her life. And I don't blame her for that. But I. I find it interesting, like, even, I don't know, I mean, I guess you leave at nine, because he also, he calls her that night, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we're very quick in moving the story here. Very, yeah. And so, so, yes, yeah, so this is after, I believe, after she gets, she gets back from the motorcycle ride, when, you know, the, the post-meet cute scene, <laughs> and, um, and and he and and she gets a she gets a, a strange phone call from a stranger, um, and and to me again personally I'm just like even if he left when you were nine how would you not recognize your own father's voice but that's just me. Well now you're nitpicking you're nitpicking this beautiful story. I'm nitpicking. Okay yeah so here's the storyline that she's this teacher has lost her car she's fallen in love with a cop. And in one day, he's really smitten with her. And now that exact same night, she's going to get a call from her mysterious father, who she hasn't seen in 27 years. And let's see, at one point, she learns he was in jail. She has no idea where he's been. He just calls her in the middle of the night and asks if he can come over. And, of course, he pops over, and it's, you know, Jason Robards, very great character actor. I love him in almost everything he's ever done, but this is probably my favorite Jason Robards movie, which is why I always feel bad that this movie's been, you know, so forgotten, because he's really good in it. He's so charming. Charming, yet crusty at the same time, and that's a nice combo. Yeah, it's so funny, because it's, uh, he's, he's supposed to, he, he's supposed to come across as a, as an older you know, we, we, we find out uh, that he might have some health problems and there's this indefinite, you know, 
end hanging over. Uh, but I, I couldn't help thinking, and again, this is just because it's 1983 and I've seen Jason Robards and things, you know, past this. And I'm like, man, he still looks so spry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's still got like 20 more years of being an old man to go. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so, so anyway, Jason Robards just shows up mysteriously in the middle of the night and he's a great character in this movie. His name is Max Dugan. He wears a black hat, you know, a black trench coat as well, has a little suitcase, kind of a shadowy, mysterious, lurking figure. And he shows up in the middle of the night and, and the mom's like, I don't want anything to do with you. You abandoned me when I was a kid. Like, you've never helped me ever. I And like, I have no money for you. I have nothing. So I know you're here for a handout. Just get out of here. Get out of my life. And it turns out, Celia, that this is not why he's here. He's not here for a handout. No. Why is he here? He He's here because his, uh, his mysterious satchel happens to contain a very large amount of cash. How much did they say exactly? Do you remember? I didn't write it down, but I think it was... I want to say it was like half a million dollars or something like that. It was, it was, it was like 600 something thousand dollars. That's right. That's right. Six, 680. He has a very specific amount and you know, his, his reasoning is, is sound. It's, you know, he, he claims that it was money that was owed to him. And um, so when he got out of jail, he went to work to these people that he claims owe him and skimmed money and so it's not technically his money but it is technically his money and so he you know that's there's a moral dilemma that's happening where he's got all this money that he wants to now give his daughter and his and his grandson whom he's never met but is um aware of his existence and clearly Nora you know being this the school teacher she's on the up and up she's you know she she clearly has a very high moral standing. Um, it just wants nothing to do with him or his money. Um, but he's he 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 has a he has that charm in this way of just you know kind of getting under there and you know getting a little inch and then getting a little bit more and he weasels his way into at least being able to spend the night because it's raining outside and poor Nora doesn't want to send her dad out into the middle of the night in the rain. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to talk about Max Dugan a little bit here as a character, just because he is a fascinating character. He is the classic example, I believe of the unreliable narrator in that he will tell her all these things about his story. And it's up to you to decide how much of this is true. And the more I watch this movie, and believe me, I've watched this movie many, many times over the years. The more I watch this movie, the more I realize this. I'm not entirely sure what his story actually is. No, we, I mean, we, we only know what he wants us to know. Yeah, and he will flat out tell you, oh, my word doesn't mean diddly poo. So he will tell you whatever you need to know. So all we learn here from this first meeting with him and Nora is that he's come home to her house in the middle of the night. Uh, he spent a long time in jail, a long time ago. He has all this money now, and he says, you know, I'm your father. I I just want to spend all this time with my grandson. Oh, by the way, I'm dying. I only have six months to live, so please indulge this old man in his dying wish. But we never actually see any proof that he's dying. Did you ever notice that? Nope, never, never. Yeah, like I said, he weasels his way in, but he's very charming. Like you said, he's he's not manipulating her in a mean way. He's just... He's just here to see his grandson for the first time and spend a lot of money to make their lives better. 
And they don't really have to know any more than that. And so he's doing it out of a good reason. He's doing it out of the goodness of his heart. But you're not entirely sure where he comes from. No. And of course, you know, he's looking sketchy as fuck. Oh, sorry. Oh, my gosh. Can I say that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Ed, yes, you can. Say it away. Um, he's looking sketchy as fuck because as soon as he gets in the house, he's closing all the shades and the windows to make sure that like nobody sees him. So, you know, we're meant to think that like he's a bad guy, but yet he, you know, it's, it's to set up this, this really this moral conflict between him and, and Nora, uh, because, you know, at the beginning of the movie, she wants nothing to do with him. At the end of the movie, she has completely fallen back in love with her father. Um, and, you know, again, happy Neil Simon play. Yeah, and again, this is one of those roles that I cannot imagine anybody but Jason Robards playing. Yeah. And again, you know, I've I've obviously seen this movie 30, 40 times in my life, but I'm really used to him as the in this role. So I'm not entirely sure who else pulls off this role of Max Dugan. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I could imagine um I don't think I can imagine anybody, you know, being as mysterious and and yet still you know, disarmingly charming. Yeah, and again, Jason Robards always kind of had that crusty, you know, you're supposed to be scared of him, but he's also likable. And and let's see, I'm trying to remember his ex exact backstory. You, you kind of skimmed over his backstory in the movie, but he's he's very specific in the movie. Let's see, he was in jail. He's, you know, now he's a street smart con. And when he was in jail, he learned how to invest in real estate. And he somehow, you know, came out of jail, turned all this investment money when he got out of jail into some property in Las Vegas. He converted that into some bigger properties. And then what these people in Las Vegas wanted to buy his properties to build a casino. He wouldn't do it. So they somehow forced him out and stole all his property and stole all his money. And so as revenge, Max Dugan went to work in the casino, ended up skimming all this money off the top as a dealer, I think. And so he basically took all the money from the people who stole his building from him. So in his opinion, all this money he has isn't stolen. This is my money I just got back that they took from me. Exactly. Because he, he literally, he, he took the exact amount of money that they took, that, that he lost in these deals, basically. Not, not a penny more is what he says. Yeah. So he says again. Yes, again. <laughs> so we are led to believe yeah, we're not entirely sure if Max is on the up and up in this movie. And that's that's kind of the quandary in the storyline. And it's really interesting. There's a there's a deep subplot in this movie about philosophy, how philosophy is the key to life. And this will come up again and again. Now, Max's philosophy is different than Nora's, but they still have the same goal. And that's what eventually she'll come to realize as the movie goes along. Um, and it's interesting. Um, one of the things that I noticed was, you know, his, uh, that Max Dugan, um, you know, Nora, Nora doesn't want Max to tell, uh, Mike who he is, you know, and then the next morning, of course, she completely forgets that there's a person there because Mike gets up and, and meets this random old guy sitting at their kitchen table. And he's like, who are you? And he says, I'm Mr. Parker. So, you know, clearly Max, you know, understands that like Nora's being cautious. And, um, but it's interesting. Like one of the things that I noticed right away is that he's sitting there and like the shades aren't drawn. So clearly he only, he like the movie only points out that he cares about not being seen 
the night before and then the next morning he doesn't seem as cautious even though Nora clearly tells him like do not leave please stay in this house don't go anywhere yeah the the basic deal is he says you know he shows up in the middle of the night says you know I want to spend six months with you I'll lavish all this money on you and he he pulls out like a stack of ten thousand dollars and gives it to her and buys a drink off of her and she's like oh my god and Max is like you know I just want to stay here for six months. No, no strings attached. Just want to know my grandson. And she's like, no, absolutely not. And he's like, look, all I want to do is give you a legacy. This is your money. This is yours. And she's like, no, it's stolen. Mm -hmm. But she does finally give in and says, okay, you can stay overnight. That's it. And anytime she gives Max an inch, he will take a mile because the next morning he's supposed to be out and gone, but he's not. He actually wakes up and he's talking to his grandson, Mike. And and makes breakfast. He's making breakfast. What do you want for breakfast tomorrow? Yeah, so so Max Dugan will forever be sticking his foot in the door and not leaving. And eventually Nora will realize, you know, this is pointless. He's a, he's a force of nature. You can't stop him. But as the movie goes along, he'll start lavishing gifts on this family. And this is the thing that I always remembered as a kid. As a kid, I loved this movie because it's a classic story of a poor family who has nothing suddenly being given everything and they don't know what to do about it everything everything yeah they come home from from their their you know that next day of school and it's their house is just full of everything everything is covered in red ribbons everywhere yeah max uh, was apparently very well versed at ordering from the sears catalog or something because he never leaves the house but all these gifts start coming in every day all set up yeah it, it's great and clearly things were very quick delivered in 1983. <laughs> well, there's one part in the movie where they get an entire home makeover in one afternoon. So, <laughs> yep, yep. You just, you see all and, and it's, it's, it's really quite, you know, clever the way, the way it's all set up because, you know, a lot of times as, as Nora and Mike are returning to the house, you can see delivery vans leaving as they're, they're coming. <laughs> so it's like, oh, oh. What else did he do? Oh, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but yes, I mean, they, you know, she, she goes, she takes her, her bike to school. She rides her little bike to school. Mike gets to school. Um, she's got some, some issues in school. And on a side note, one of her students is named Celia. And that was, that was a trip <laughs> just to listen to, you know, somebody else, somebody else, uh, you know, on screen with my name. Um, but yeah, so she, so there's, you know, they're still, they're showing that she's, you know, she's, she's a caring and capable teacher. She cares about her students. Um, another little tidbit that I noticed too, and I don't know if you picked this up, but this was, this was the night that uh, Donald Sutherland drops off the bike at her house. So this is like, this is the night before. Um, he cracks some line about like, and they haven't even gone on an official date yet. This was just the like, after driving around the bicycle, you know, and, and arresting this guy, he crack he makes some crack about like seeing her the next morning or like, maybe we can make it a morning. And I'm just like, damn, he moves fast. He's upset. He's a, he's he's angry that their their romance isn't moving fast enough on the first day. Yeah. So so yes. Yeah. So so they return. So this is basically the second evening. Mr. Parker is staying with them, and they have a house full of 
everything you could possibly imagine, new appliances. Um, and, and they're just, you know, so enamored with, with all of it. And then Mike walks into his room and he's got a big screen TV and a bunch of media equipment. And of course, the one thing that pops into my head is like, oh, well, here's where he learned how to hack the U.S. defense system. Well, there you go. Yeah. And and also how he learned how to dial in and change his grades. It's Ferris Bueller. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. I'm getting it mixed up. In He changes his grades in war games. He changes his days absent in Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So, but, but it's all because of Max Dugan, that bastard. Well, Max Dugan. Exactly. Everything stems from this. Wow. Oh, okay. So there's two things I wanted to mention here. You mentioned at the start that this movie is very snappy with the dialogue, very clever. And like, like I had a hard time writing down all the little exchanges between Nora and Max. I didn't even bother because I knew that I wouldn't get them. So I should write some down. I feel bad. Okay. Well, I wrote it down a couple of them. Can I try? I'll try to read a couple just to, you know, salvage our reputation here. So at one point when Nora realizes Max is just there to uh, give all this money to them over the next couple of months, she's like, why didn't you ever get in touch with me before? And Max Dugan is like, well, I never had anything worth giving you before. And she's like, huh? I always thought affection would be enough. Yeah. I mean, that that's a good quote. I like that. Yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah, it's uh, what I what I really liked about the writing is that the the snappy, smart dialogues were equally spread between Nora and her male counterparts. Um, that they they gave a lot of the really smart stuff to her, uh, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, although do keep in mind that the guy who wrote the dialogue was married to her. So fair. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. Like. There's not a stupid character in this movie. Like, the kid, Mike, Matthew Broderick, he's a juvenile delinquent and he's kind of a slacker, but he's not dumb. And the mom completely knows what's going on the entire time and knows that Max Dugan is steamrolling her. And then, of course, Max Dugan is a genius. Everything he says is, you can take it either one of two ways, and he's always one step ahead of of everybody else in the movie. But I got to point out that the cop, Donald Sutherland, he's not an idiot either. And that's what a lesser movie would have done. The lesser movie would have portrayed Donald Sutherland as an idiot who doesn't know what's going on, but he's not. He knows things are not on the up and up here with Nora and all these gifts, and he's trying to figure it out. And he does figure it out eventually. So that's the one thing that I really like about this movie, that no one is stupid. Everyone is quite smart, actually. Yes. No, he, he I mean, yes, when the when the wad of cash that uh, Max Dugan gives Nora falls out of her bag on their official first date, it's clear something is up. <laughs> yeah. And there's one more scene I wanted to uh, point out here at the school. Like there's a couple throwaway scenes in this movie where Nora's at school and you just kind of see her life as an English teacher. But there's one scene that I didn't maybe catch when I was younger. That's very fitting to the plot. It's there where, where she catches these two girls cheating in class. Yeah, that's Celia. Yeah, Celia, the little rule breaker, Celia. And Nora's like, why did you give this other girl the answers on the test? Now you are both going to fail. And the other girl says, well, she's my cousin. And in my family, we help each other out. And this is what convinces Nora to help her father. I kind of forgot that that's important to the plot. Yeah, yeah, no, that is. It's, it's an interesting side of that she's, you know, maybe forgotten what it's like to have other family other than, you know, being able to, like, watch out for her son, but somebody who's, you know, legitimately wanting to watch out for her. It's been a long time since since she's she's had that in her life. Mm-hmm. Okay, 
So I guess there's one other little side character we haven't mentioned yet, and that's the nosy neighbor. And again, okay, you can see the dramatic tension in this movie. There's this mom who has no money, getting all this money, all of a sudden happens to be dating a cop who's very suspicious where this money is coming from. You know, Max says he's wanted by the law and he's dying and the cops are going to try to, you know. So the movie's really a question of, is the cop going to figure it out and, and, and bust Nora before, you know, their life gets changed for the better. But there's one other character who's fairly important to this movie, and we got to talk about her. And this is the neighbor, Mrs. Litke. Let's talk about Mrs. Litke. Mrs. Litke. I love Mrs. Litke. So, yeah, so Mrs. Litke, this is this was Mrs. Stimler from Splash or Blanche from Grease. Um, just wackadoo with her, all of her cuckoo dogs and her patchwork little house. Um, but yeah, she's, she's the epitome of like, you know, the, the funny, like means well nosy neighbor. Oh, oh, what's going on over there? You know, she's got the, so yeah, so she, she definitely lends a lot. Oh, I'll, I'll close the gate after you. No problem. Like she just kind of inserts herself, um, into all of these these improvements that are happening over at Nora and Mike's house. Oh, and a side note, one of my favorite responses, um, anytime Max um, brings in something new, I love that Nora's immediate response is, don't touch it. Don't, don't touch it. Don't touch it. We're, it's all going to go back. Like everything from the appliances to when they come home and there's a big, beautiful yellow Mercedes parked out front. Don't touch it. Like or and a and a, and a, a beautiful watch on the front seat that tells the time in Singapore. Yeah, this is one of those movies. It's just really kind of hard to explain unless you've seen it. This just the amount of gifts that Max Dugan will bestow upon his loving daughter and grandson, just an entire house. Every day they come home from school and their entire house is filled with new gifts and gadgets and whatever. And, and at one point or another, the mom confronts Max and she's like, stop buying us all this stuff. And he says, oh, there's a great line here. I wrote it down. I love this Neil Simon line. He says, whoever told you that abject poverty was a character builder was misinforming you. <laughs> I think that's right about the time I wrote down this dialogue is so funny. Yeah, it really is. It's really well done. It's so much smarter than the average movie, and especially for a comedy. Yeah, and it's so snappy. Just, just how witty. I mean, if 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 your if your listeners like don't watch it for anything else, they should at least watch it for that snappy dialogue because it's really well written. I love that Max Dugan always has an answer to where these gifts are coming from without flat out admitting that he bought them. Oh, you won this one in a game show. She's like, I was never on a game show. And he's like, well, it was one of those you game shows you don't have to appear on. Yes, Mr. Wittgenstein. <laughs> okay, well, now you're spoiling his alias. All right, okay, anyway, so, so here's what's happening in this movie. So Max is slowly moving into the house and buying all these gifts, and his grandson loves him. But his grandson doesn't know that this is his grandfather yet. Because right now he just thinks this is a boarder named Mr. Parker. And he doesn't realize that, you know, he's getting these gifts firsthand from a grandfather. Although Max is starting to get a little more open about it, a little more open where he says, you know, Mike, why don't you just write what you'd like tomorrow and slip it under my door on a piece of paper? I, I thought he meant that for food, but um, like he was taking his breakfast order. That's that's what I that's what I took that as. Oh, oh OK. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, you could you could take that either way, huh? 
That's true. But um, but yes, it, it comes to a point where, you know, where Nora doesn't want to lie anymore. And she tells she tells Max that, you know, you got to come clean. You have to tell Mike who you are and what this is all about. Yeah. And and Max has these wonderful non answers every time. Mm-hmm. Like, like, OK, she says, here's the deal. You can stay. And he's like, I, I only have six months to live. Cough, cough. And like, we don't know if he's actually dying or not. You never actually do find that out. And so she's, okay, fine. I can't kick you out. But here's the deal. Stay here. You can do whatever you want. Just don't become a hero for Mike. And she actually has a pretty good point here. She actually has very sound logic. She's like, you know, Mike's got a drug dealer friend at school. He doesn't need an ex-con grandfather being his other role model. So just be here and be a kind grandfather and don't lavish gifts on us. And Max is like, yeah, sure, I can live with that. And then he's like, do 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 the next day, you know, even more gifts. <laughs> yep. Yep. More gifts, more gifts, more gifts. And, and, uh, one, one of the amazing gifts that Max bestows is he, he watches, uh, I, I think he, I think he sneaks out and watches one of Mike's games, one, one of Mike's baseball games. And we see it is, it becomes a thing that Mike cannot hit the ball. Yeah. Like, like I said earlier, there's a huge baseball subplot in this movie. And I always I always kind of forget that it's like a fourth of the movie. The, like a four, 25% of this movie is baseball scenes. And I kind of forgot that. But maybe that's why I liked it so much as a kid. Because, you know, you wouldn't think an eight-year-old boy would really love this movie. But I was a baseball fan. So that's true. Why. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Mike. So, Matthew Broderick, he is terrible at baseball. The worst hitter ever. And his mom gets so stressed out at the games. And this is the one thing that we learn about Mike is that he really doesn't have any passion in his life, but he does love baseball. He loves it, but he happens to stink at it. And that's very unfortunate. So, yeah, so just file that away for now. Mike is really bad at baseball and we'll get to the big reveal later. Anyway, but for now, so Nora has already had her car stolen in this movie. And now one day when they're at the baseball field again, she gets her bike stolen. So now she's had two vehicles stolen. She had the, the car that she had to start and then the motorcycle that the cop, Brian Costello, gave her. So she's lost both of them now, which apparently means that Venice, I believe, is the car theft capital of the world. Yeah, just don't move to Venice or don't own a car in Venice. Yeah, so she's without a car and she's without a bike. And this is when they come home one day, her and the cop, and Max has bought Nora a brand new Mercedes-Benz top-of-the-line car. And this is the speech... Uh, that I think we talked about earlier where she grabs her father, Max, and she's like, you said no more gifts. You promised me. And he's like, oh, my word isn't worth diddly poo. <laughs> and this is, again, right around the time when she's also telling Mike, don't touch it. Yeah, don't touch it. Don't drive it. But, <laughs> but this is where we get the big moment in the movie where she's like, you know, finally, she's like, you have to sit down with Mike and you t- have to tell him the whole story. You know, you're buying us Mercedes Benzes. You're buying us watches. You're buying us everything we, we want. It's it's really suspicious. Our neighbors are talking. So she tells her dad, you talk to Mike right now. Explain that you're an ex-con and all this money is stolen and that we're just going to send it all back. You tell him right now. So Max goes and sits down with his grandson. And this is where we get the second iteration of his new alias. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wittgenstein. Yeah, so explain Mr. Wittgenstein's story. He tells it. Uh, he tells Mike this big, long, convoluted fake story. He tells Mike that 
he his name he is Mr. Or I forgot what his first name was, but that he was um, jail roommates with his grandfather Max Dugan, and um, basically you know says that they were they were great friends and that he promised Max that he would take care of Nora and Mike. Yeah, this is his name is Gus Wittgenstein. Gus, and, thank uh, you. and he's like, uh, Mike, this was your grandfather's dying wish that I move in here with you and give you all these gifts that that come from your grandfather. And, you know, Mike, a dying wish is a sacred pact. You must accept these gifts. So he's going to turn Mike against his mom after this story. Yeah, by 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 guilt tripping him. <laughs> Although this is this is where the philosophy part comes up again. And, and again, I don't remember this from a kid, but. I see it now, and I, it's, I watch this movie differently, and he says, you know, I'm Gus Wittgenstein. I've been here to make sure you get a good education. You go to a big college back east, Mike, and you study philosophy. You're, yes, right. Your grandfather would have wanted you to study philosophy. Yeah, and again, this is a big deal in the movie, and it's going to come up a lot. Philosophy. Philosophy is the key to life. So that's the story, and, and Mike buys it. And, and so Mike goes to his mom, and he's like, you know, I finally had the talk. So I understand the story now. <laughs> And she's like, oh, that's good. But we find out real quick that this was not the story she expected uh, her father to tell. He lied to his grandson yet again. Yep. Because <laughs> we can't trust anything he tells us, even though he's charming when he says it. <laughs> and here's uh, here's some more Neil Simon dialogue. I wrote this one down because I liked it. Where, uh, where Mike asks uh, Max Dugan one question. He's like, what business was my grandfather in? And Max says, philosophy. And Mike's like, you can make money from philosophy? And Max says, oh, sure, when you've got the right one. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a great line. I love it. Yep. Okay, so from here on out, it's really just one big comedy of misunderstandings. As uh, Nora thinks her father's telling Mike the truth. Max Dugan is lying, of course. He's going to keep giving them gifts. Uh, I believe he gives her a diamond necklace, a brand new diamond necklace. And she goes on out on a date that night and wears it, despite her, you know, you know, better instincts. And the cop, of course, notices the necklace. And he's like, why are you driving a Mercedes and, and have a, why do you have a brand new diamond necklace? And right off the bat, the cop knows something's fishy here. Oh, absolutely. And I love the excuse that she gives. Oh, oh, well, they, they ran out of Chevys. <laughs> so they gave it to me at the same price. <laughs> yeah. And this will be the whole thing for the rest of the movie. And from here on out, there's only like half an hour left in the movie. It moves really quick. It's only 90 minutes long, the whole movie. And the cop is already suspicious. And and her, and even like, yeah, and even her, her response about the necklace, if only they were real. Like, she's, she's you know, she, she's clearly like, if she, she, she's starting to enjoy, I think, I think the gifts. Um, and I think, you know, she's starting to come around a little bit to, to the 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 notion that her her dad is trying to you know take care of her and provide for her yeah, and and when they're on the date i know the cop is very he's like uh why are you acting so weird you won't let me in the house you won't all your shades are drawn he knows something's fishy because right she pretends she thinks her front door is broken yeah yeah the door so so he's getting really suspicious already even though we're only a couple days into the relationship and they've only known each other for what two days three days so at this point, he's like, he thinks, yeah, she's self-conscious about being poor. But that is not actually the problem. 
no, not at all. She has to hide how many, how what all of the wonderful treasures that have suddenly appeared in her house to make her look like she keeps saying, you know, teacher salary, teacher salary. You know, she was driving an old jalopy before. Now she's got a Mercedes and a diamond necklace. Like that, that would be pretty fishy. Yeah, and again, nobody in this movie is stupid. A lesser comedy would have had a dumb, bumbling cop, but this guy knows instantly. She's in some kind of weird issue where she's, like, getting truckloads of money. She's acting funny. On their date, when they're together, this is where I think the $5,000 falls out of her purse. Yeah. yeah, she's like, oh, I'm watching that. It's for the school. It's it's a school budget. I'm holding on to it. And he's like, why would you carry $5,000 cash in your purse? And she's like, well... I'm on a date with a cop. I figure it's the safest place I could be. <laughs> Just again, such a smart answer. Like I, if I were in that situation, I wouldn't have thought of that that quickly. <laughs> okay. So, so here's the last half hour of the movie. And this is the part that endeared me so much to this story when I was a kid. Okay. So we know Mike sucks at baseball. He's terrible. Every time he strikes out, he's embarrassed. You know, his teammates hate him. They make fun of him. The coaches are embarrassed for him. And Max Dugan wants to do something wonderful and special for his grandson. So now, Celia, now we are to the perfect time. What wonderful gift does Max Dugan give to his grandson? Max Dugan finds the most sought-after baseball coach and gets him to come out and give his grandson lessons. Yeah, okay. So as I said earlier, this is Charlie Lau. He was the hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox in the 70s and 80s. Almost all the big hitters in Major League Baseball studied under him. They're all like devotees of him. In fact, there's this one hitter, George Brett, really famous, uh, one of the best hitters of the 80s, big Charlie Lau disciple. So somehow Max Dugan has hired Charlie Lau to come out and work with poor Matthew Broderick and teach him how to hit a baseball. Oh, I love it. He just, you know, he's there. He's watching along the sidelines, just, you know, watching this another game that they lose that Mike loses and and comes up to Mike afterwards. And Mike doesn't believe that, you know, this he he's he he is. Yeah, he, he doesn't understand. It. He doesn't believe what's going on. And he's like, I don't think so. Until Charlie Lau brings up the word philosophy. Yeah, yeah, this is important, and this is where it all ties together. It's actually a very tightly written screenplay, if you pay attention. So, Charlie Lau sees Mike, and he says, uh, you know who I am? I'm Charlie Lau from the White Sox. And Mike's like, yeah, whatever, I don't I don't care. And and Charlie's like, you stink. And Mike's like, well, yeah, no kidding, I stink. And the, and the guy says, well, it's not your fault. No one ever taught you the basics. And so Charlie Lau's like, you know, if you want to learn, I'd like to teach you. I'd like to teach you the basics of baseball. And the kid, Mike, is like, why would you want to waste your time with me? You are the most decorated hitting coach in all of baseball history. Everyone knows who you are. Why would you spend your free time with me? And Charlie Lau says, oh, it's not free time. Someone paid me very handsomely to do this. I got a letter in the mail and a huge check, and it says, teach this boy the philosophy of hitting. <laughs> and oh, that must mean it came from my grandpa. But no, I mean, like, yeah, as as far as as far as Mike knows, his his grandpa before he died wrote Charlie Lau a letter. And yeah, so it's so it is it's 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 really it's really sweet how how special how special it is. And to, and to see this like coaching montage of, of Matthew Broderick actually like getting coached by Charlie Lau. 
Yeah, and these are like legitimate real hitting drills that Charlie Lau is known for. Like you're watching, and if you know anything about baseball, he's, you'd be like, yeah, these are legitimate fundamentals. He's really teaching Matthew Broderick how to hit. And Broderick, for his part, really does look convincing as a hitter. So they must have really worked with him in this movie. And I know Max Dugan himself doesn't really leave the house much during the movie. He usually, you know, contains himself back at Nora's house because he doesn't want the cops to know about him or know where he is. But he always comes out to watch Mike during hitting practice because this means so much to him. He just, all he wants more than anything else is to see his grandson succeed. Yeah, I love that, you know, you can just kind of see him there off to the side with his with his black hat and his black trench coat just trying to, you know, which is funny because you'd like, I would think that that would make him look more suspicious. <laughs> but, but you know, he, he, he sneaks out when he can and, and gets back to the house and clearly uh, hasn't been caught yet. Okay, so Mike's getting his hitting lessons from Charlie Lau and, and finally he hits a home run one day and it's like the biggest thing ever. And there's this big old huge moment of Matthew Broderick jumping up and down and running around the bases. And, and then he comes home with his mom. And you thought the gifts were big before. Now the big gifts start flooding in. Because now when they come home, they have an entirely brand new house. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before, before you get to that, I just think it's so adorable that when Matthew Broderick hit that homer, that he jumped into Charlie Lau. And, like, Charlie Lau, like, like jumped, jumped up and, like, like, he was a little kid. It was, it was so cute. Like, it just makes the end of that scene. Um, but yes, so, so they come home from, from batting practice and, uh, they, they basically, um, they, this is, this is what I'm talking about where like, you've got these like huge delivery trucks that are driving by and the neighbors like, it's so beautiful. And they're just like, what is happening? They, they, they have a new house. Yeah. Somehow Max made over their house in one afternoon. Complete with pigeons and doves. Like, what was that? So it's just Mike and his mom, open mouth agape, looking at their new house with their new Cadillac and a new entrance gate. And they go in and they have a, a purebred Great Dane now. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, a Great Dane named after a philosopher, Plato. Plato. Not Pluto, but Plato. So this is where the mom just kind of pulls Max aside and says, enough. Stop it. Stop making over my house. Everyone's suspicious. You're not going to get away with it. I'm going to go to jail for being an accessory. Just stop. So they have one final talk here together. And this is really the last dialogue in the movie between the mom and Max Dugan. And she says, you know, you have to give it up now. Give yourself up, blah, blah, blah. And this is where Max really lays it on thick that he's dying. You know, he's like, <laughs> I think I'm really feeling sick these days. And she's, you know, of course, feels bad for him. But they get in this whole debate over whether he should give up or not. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, too, because this is the point that, you know, again, it's been three days, maybe? Well, they say 10 days, 10 days total. Oh, 10 days total. But still, 10 days from a father who abandoned her at nine, um, their their relationship sure seemed to improve quite quickly. But I guess, you know, when one person is telling you they're dying, um, and is 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 convinced is convincing that you know that I I, I suppose like I don't yeah it, that's just one thing I noticed it's just like boy wow like she because I because because she she basically um you know she she at the end of this conversation says like we'll come with you 
we'll drop everything. We'll, we'll leave. Let's get you out of town, you know, so you don't get caught. We'll, let's come with you. We'll, we'll all, you know, we'll go to Brazil together and you, me and Mike, and we can just, you know, live together for, for the rest of your time. Uh, so it's, it's just interesting that she's done this complete 180 from don't touch it to, you know, let's run away together. Yeah. Although this does bring up a question and this is something I've always been curious about. Do you think Max Dugan is actually dying or is he just using this because he knows it will work on her? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I always thought it was a scam, but at the end of the movie, uh, Brian, the cop says, I didn't know how sick he was, which implies he's actually looked it up. So I'm not entirely sure about this. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, maybe, 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 uh, the, like the jail or, well, I guess, no, cause it wasn't in jail recently, but yeah. I mean, yeah, clearly if, 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 if Brian says, I didn't know how sick he was either, that's something that he inferred from Nora or yeah, maybe he followed up and was able to find his medical records or something. Yeah, I mean, that's just a question I've always wanted to bring up because, you know, I've always wondered this. Because it's one thing you notice is that this movie's kind of sneaky. There's never any proof that he's dying. He just says he is. But he also says, you can't trust me, my word is worth diddly poo. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's get to the end of the movie here where she basically implores Max and he says, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling well. I don't think I'll be here that much longer. And she's like, no, don't die. She's like... If you want to give us a gift, buy us six more months with you because Mike really likes you. Mike's really happy right now. And I'm happy we're getting along. It's like, you know, this is like the first time in my life I've actually had a family. So he promises, you know, oh, okay, I'll stay with you, Nora. I'll never leave you again. And they kiss and hug. And when they do that, he's got this open-eyed stare where you know he's lying. He's going to ditch themselves. He's going to ditch them sooner or later. He just... He's just here to give them all the stuff in the mail and then get the hell out of here. So he has no interest in, you know, tying up loose ties with his daughter. She just doesn't realize that yet. Okay, and now the plot is going to get really complicated right here at the end of the movie. Because Brian Costello, the cop, is going to discover Max Dugan. Now, up to this point, Brian knows something fishy is going on in Nora's house. She's got all this money. He doesn't know where it's coming from. So one day he comes over to visit and Max is planning to leave that, that exact day. We know Max is planning on ditching out on Nora and Mike, but Brian happens to walk in with flowers one day and he sees Max packing up and getting ready to leave. And from this point on in the movie, the jig is up. Yes, because uh, he, you know, tries to, to say that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a boarder. I can't remember if he introduced himself as Mr. Parker or Mr. Wittgenstein at this point. <laughs> Um, and you know, I'll take the flowers or no, he, he introduces himself as a caretaker. He says, I'm a caretaker. I'm here just watching the house. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know the movie Manos, the hands of fate? I don't know if you know that movie. Oh gosh. It's been a long time. Yeah. It's like, I'm Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, he's just a caretaker. He takes care of the place while the master is away. But Brian, the cop, does not buy this at all. And Brian's like, oh, that's interesting. I see you're in here. You uh, got a big old briefcase. And, you know, there's been a big windfall of money handed to Nora lately. And he kind of smiles at uh, Max Dugan and says, yeah, you're doing terrific work here as a caretaker, especially when you consider her income. And he just smiles and, and you know, Max Dugan, he knows he's in trouble now. The cops are onto him. They know something's up. So he really escalates his exit plan here where he goes to the bank 
and Max tries to deposit a bunch of money, but Brian follows him and takes his picture. And, and this is where Brian finally confronts Nora, you know, the mom, he goes to her school and he says, what the hell is going on here? Explain this to me now. And he pulls out the picture of Max Dugan at the ATM. He's like, who is this man staying with you? And why is he giving you all this money? So it turns out our friend, uh, Mrs. Litke, the neighbor, she sold them out. Mrs. Litke's the one that reported all this to the cops. That's right. So yeah, she's, she's not a nice nosy neighbor. She's just a nosy neighbor. She's a Karen. She is. She came across as nice. She came across as a nice lady, but she's a Karen. So Brian basically pulls out all this evidence he's got and what he's found out. He's like, you know, there's this man, Nora, he's staying in your house. He drops all this money on you. He gave you a new car, a new house, new everything. Today at the bank, he deposited $400,000 in your name. And he's like, if I take you into custody right now, Nora, you're an accessory to something. So tell me what it is. And he implores, I'm looking out for you. And Nora is kind of trapped. You know, she's being confronted and Brian has all this evidence and Brian just keeps on her. He's like, who is he? And she just finally says, you know, he's just this rich eccentric uncle. This is what he does. And uh, Brian's like, no, you're lying. I know you're lying. I know everything about you in the 10 days that I've known you, apparently. I can read it on your face. This guy is not a rich uncle. Who is he? And Nora's like, well, I just don't want to talk about it. I'm busy right now. And so Brian finally gives her an ultimatum. He says, you know, I'm going to follow up on this picture. And if I find out you're involved in something illegal, you could go to jail. And you have to remember that he loves her. He loves Nora. So he's looking out for her. He's giving her an out. And she just keeps denying it for now. But he says, I have to follow up on this. I'm a cop. So it's like dot, dot, dot. She really only has about one day left of Max Dugan. And he better run tonight or he's going to get caught. It's over. It's kind of amazing that Brian kind of gives her that out because, you know, you'd think he she could she could be taken out of the station now if he just caught some random guy depositing four hundred thousand dollars into an account in her name. So clear, clearly, clearly he, he yeah, clearly he he was I mean, he was he's been smitten from her f since the beginning of the movie, practically. Yeah. So. Yeah, and this is really the last dramatic scene in the movie. We go back to the house and, you know, the mom is going to tell Max to, you know, leave. You got to leave now. The cops are on to you. You're going to jail. I could go to jail. And Max is like, really? How did they find out? And she's like, they have your picture, dad. And he's like, darn it. I'm not as sharp as I used to be. Somehow they caught me. But it's funny. I always forgot during the scene, like they're having this big dramatic conversation. But at the same time, they have a brand new living room and a brand new furniture and beds all over the place. Even on his last day at home, Max has still bought them truckloads of gifts. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, they he literally rebuilds their house. <laughs> yeah. This this is where we have the scene where you mentioned earlier. I think we jumped ahead a little bit where she says, you know, we could all run away together, or go to South America together, and they agree that that's what's going to happen tomorrow morning. We all leave for South America together. We bail, but it's not going to happen, of course, as he's going to bail on them before they all have a chance to bail together. Well, yes, they can't bail quite yet because Mike's got one last game left. That's right. Okay, so here we are at the end of the movie. Okay, here we go. So the final scene in the movie is Max and Nora have agreed that tomorrow the whole family is running away together. Mike finally learns the story that Max Dugan's his grandfather and he and Max have one more great last line. I, I, I always forgot about this, but before he leaves the movie, Max tells Nora, you know, there's a moral in the story in all of this. And she's like, really? What's the moral? And he's like, 
it doesn't pay to get in touch with your children. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so the grandfather slips out at three in the morning. He says goodbye to Mike, and he basically has a little speech. And I wrote this one down verbatim. He says, you know, Mike, if I stay, it makes your mother an accessory. And I lied to you before, Mike. I didn't learn real estate in prison. The only thing I ever learned in prison is that it's a terrible place to be. So keep your nose clean and keep your eye on the ball. So long, kid. And really, that's Max Dugan. He's out of the movie. He leaves. He just uh, slips out in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Oh, but he does. He does give them the video, right? He makes them a videotape. He does. He so he puts he uh, in in one of Mike's myriad video accessories. He does record a goodbye message um, that they that they play on the on the big screen. Um, I can't remember if they if they watch it before or after the game. It's before. It has to be before. Yeah, so they they watch it before the game. It's the very last scene of them in their house, and they're getting ready to go to Mike's baseball game, and Max has already left. So the only thing left of him is this videotape that he made the night before. So they pop it in, and and Max says, you know, I'm headed for white sandy beaches and pina coladas. I'm headed south. And the tape continues. It's like, I didn't deposit all the money in the bank in your name, Nora. I may be sentimental, but I'm not stupid. I took some of it with me. And he says... Thank you both for the best two weeks of my life. So 14 days. That's how long this movie took place. Okay, 14 days. That makes a little bit more sense uh, because still I I do feel like Brian and Nora's romance was very quick. Well, yeah, the first day was a whirlwind. And then after that, it was just a series of ups and downs. (laughs) Anyway, here's Max doing his videotape wish for his grandson. One last day before the cops close in and arrest him. And Max says, you know, Mike, in your baseball game today, if you happen to get a hold of a long one and you're running around the bases, I'd be very proud and pleased if you said, that one was for you, Mr. Wittgenstein. I love that line. Yep, his dying wish. Just just say the home run was for me if you happen to hit one during the game. And that's that's really what's going to happen at the end. Now, I, I read a review once where Gene Siskel said the ending of this movie is way too predictable. But you know what? Who cares? It's good. Oh, it is. And and the the best part of it is, is, is when Mike hits the home run, his face, his face is because it's in slow motion and, you know, the music is leading up to it. It's clear that that's what's going to happen because he strikes out twice. Like, you know, it's very dramatic and he hits the homer and just the look of like, giddy surprise and and that turns into like absolute glee on Matthew Broderick's face just makes the whole movie for me. Yeah, it would it would totally make me tear up as a kid. And in, in fact, it makes me tear up now. It's it's really I mean, if you played sports at all, if you were ever a failure and then became good all of a sudden, this is such a neat moment, the final scene of this game. Although there's one scene I kind of skipped over where right before the game, Brian pulls over Nora. She's on his on her way to uh, Mike's final baseball game. And he says, you know, I know Max Dugan is your father. I looked it up. What the hell? Where Where is he? Turn him in right now. And she's like, no, I won't turn him in. And he's like, I'm helping you. You tell me where he is and I can help you. And she still won't help. And she's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to my son's baseball game. I can't help you right now. And it's funny because all throughout this movie, we have heard that Brian has a son, too. Yes. And 
We he, yes, he's mentioned he's mentioned this yeah he's mentioned the son a couple times and now I find it rather convenient that his son just happens to be pitching at the same game that Mike is playing on. <laughs> yeah, if you thought the start of this movie was a meet cute, then the end of this movie is an end cute. Yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, Nora is going to her son's baseball game, and all throughout this movie. Brian the cop has kept saying, you know, I have a teenage son, he's 14, but I only see him on weekends. So Nora goes to the baseball game and it turns out that Brian's son is pitching for Santa Monica High against her son's team. And and Brian's son has a two-hit shutout in the ninth inning. And it turns out that Mike, her son, is the only person who can end the shutout if he gets a home run. So that's the end of the movie here where Brian and Nora are arguing on the bleachers about, you know, if she should turn in Max Dugan. And she's like, well, I'll give you a bet. Uh, she says, if my son hits a home run off your son, then I don't have to tell you anything. If your son strikes my son out, then I'll tell you everything you need to know. So that's kind of the end of the movie leading up to the last at bat. Like I said, it's an end cute. Yeah. So, you know, pretty, pretty low stakes. <laughs> yeah. No pressure, Mike. <laughs> uh, and no, no pressure whatsoever, you know, and it's funny too, because Nora then starts like, you know, screaming and yelling and, and I think she might swear once or twice and all the, you know, other, other baseball moms are like, Oh, Oh my gosh. Oh, for your mouth. And she's just like, fuck off. Like, this is my kid here. We've, we've had a rough couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. This is again, just great Neil Simon dialogue. I just love this one where Nora, you know, up to this point in the movie, Every time her son's at bat, she's very embarrassed and she cringes. But now that there's a lot of information on the line about her father and if her son's going to hit a home run off Brian's son, she suddenly gets very into the game. And, and she's like, uh, knock the hell out of that goddamn ball. Come on, Mike, just one swing. Hit the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the other parents is like, Nora, you're an English teacher. And Nora's like, oh, you know what? Screw it. I've had my car stolen. I've had my bike stolen. It's about time I get back at those bastards. Hit it, Mike. And he does. He does. Yeah, this is such a great scene. So it's 0-2. Mike is just getting embarrassed by this much better pitcher, Brian's kid. And then Mike keeps looking over, and there's, you know, there's his coach behind the fence, Charlie Lau, giving him advice, showing him how you do, you know, like a little butt wiggle to keep your head down and keep your weight balanced. And then Charlie Lau gets the last laugh as Mike just clobbers the final pitch. Oh, Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so great. It's, it's such, it's just one of those like wonderful, awesome moments that you wouldn't think would be in a, you know, movie about a dad who stole a bunch of money from a casino and is like showering gifts on his estranged daughter also happens to be a, a really fun and awesome and uplifting baseball movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is one of the better baseball movies I know. And it, it's funny People always ask me, like, what are your favorite baseball movies? And I'm always like, well, you know, there's only like five really good ones that I like. But you know what? There's one, Max Dugan Returns, that I'd put in there as well. Because if you're a baseball fan, you should see it. It's got a really cool baseball plot. Yeah, and it is. It, it is fun to see the to see the little bit between uh, Charlie Lau and, and, and Mike and that it's it's a nice it's a nice callback. And, and it's neat to see him in more than one scene in the movie as well. Yeah, and this scene also has a great, I, I don't know if I can find it, the music online and play it here, but it's got a great little soundtrack when Mike hits the home run and he's dancing around the bases and screaming and, and all the parents are going crazy. Anyway, if I can find the music, I'll put it right here so you can hear it. But of course, we can't forget, as his grandfather requested, 
What does Mike yell as he's run, running around third base? This one was for, or uh, what was it? This is for you, Wittgenstein. That's right. His grandfather's dying, well, maybe dying wish. We don't know that he's dying for sure. But yeah, Mike gets the home run and he screams, that was for you, Wittgenstein. And it's it's always funny. I don't know. If you listen to the background in this movie, you hear one of the players on the other team say, screw you, McPhee. <laughs> so, so yeah, so you Matthew Broderick hits the home run, wins the game, and again, we thought Max Dugan had left, that he's, you know, abandoned and flown off to South America, but he has not. Turns out, Celia, he makes one more little cameo here right at the end, when the home run ball lands right at his feet. Yes, it lands at, uh, no, it lands at his feet, but don't other kids pick it up, because he has to pay kids to get the ball back. Yeah, the little rapscallions grab the ball before he can get it. So he, he buys it from them. He has to pay them off. Yeah, I think I think he could have given him more than five bucks, but, you know. Yeah, those kids are the worst negotiators ever. <laughs> so, so Max Dugan has the home run ball, you know, that his grandson has hit. And the kids are like, hey, give it back. That's mine. I found it. And Max is like, would you take five bucks for it and five for your friend? And they're like, yeah, sure. Okay, great. Neato, mister. And so he pulls out a roll of like $10,000 and reels off two $5 bills. I know, it's $5. Yeah, suckers. You know, I guess the kids weren't paying any attention, you know. Five bucks got you a lot in 83, I suppose. I'd have been like, hey, you got more money there, mister. But, uh, you know, this also means that because Mike hit the home run, that Nora doesn't have to tell Mr. Cop Guy anything. Oh, well. Well, okay, to be fair, he does say, he says, you know, I should turn you in. I should turn Max Dugan in, but I'm trying to protect you. And he's like, damn it. He's, you know, he's conflicted. He's like, does this mean I'm corrupt? And Nora's like, well, aren't we all a little corrupt? Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the end, he decides to do his cop duties. Like he says, you know, I can tell from your face he's going to South America. You told me I'm going to go. You told me he's going to South America. I'm going to go call the airline right now. But she won the bet, so he can't do it. Then he says, well, I can do it later. And she's like, oh, it's the weekend. No one's going to catch him on the weekend. Come have pizza with us. You know, my son, your son. And you can go look for Max Dugan later. Right. Detective work doesn't happen on the weekend. Come on. Yeah, but that's the implication. He is still going to go looking for Max, just not today, because today's pizza day. No, Nora wants to give him a head start. Yeah. And then the, the movie ends with, you know, we've been thinking that Max Dugan is flying to South America, but he's not because they see him. Yes, they see him, but before that happens, they get out to the parking lot, and lo and behold, another car has been stolen. <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, third car Nora has had stolen in this movie. So she's all flustered. She's like, somebody stole my Mercedes, damn it. And then she looks, and there's Max Dugan driving off in it, waving. Yep, honk honk, dr yep, driving off and waving. And she's, she looks up and she says, he's gonna drive to Brazil. Oh, yeah. That's how we did it in the 80s. Lots of driving to Brazil. <laughs> Although she does have a very poignant last line of the movie. And again, I probably didn't catch the poignancy of this when I was a kid, but it's the first time in the movie she actually calls him that. She says, so long, Pop. Yeah. 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 And just like that, he drives off into the animated credits. Yep. And then, you know, there's... Yes. I, I, the, I, I always loved the... 
the animated the animated parts of this and the, and the music too i don't i don't remember who did the music but it was one thing that i remembered um you know being a musician myself like music sticks with me and the minute the opening credits started with the animation and the minute they start at the end and you hear the music like i remembered it instantly the, the like the clarinet like I just yeah it just it just came it came right back it just I don't know there's just, it's just something there's just the whole movie just has this like charm to it yeah magical is the word that I use and, and I know that's kind of an overdone word when people talk about movies but it really is kind of a magical little movie that makes you feel good it's you know it's got a nice little life lesson there's good dialogue good acting there's a cool little baseball subplot with a happy ending there's the snappy you know playwright dialogue it's just one of those neat little innocent charming little minor movies that there's no equivalent for anymore really like after about 1985 or so there is no no such thing as max dugan returns in a movie theater yeah i mean yeah because there there are stakes but they don't ever seem to get very high um even though it's funny, even though there's the potential for that, it, it just, it just never, it, I don't know. You just never get the feeling that, that something bad's going to happen. So wait, you're saying that Nora going to jail is not a bad stake? <laughs> no, but, but you get the feeling that that's not going to happen. Like it just doesn't feel like that could be possible. And, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it is, it's that kind of like magical, you know, happy bubble that you get from you know more of that play essence the the draw the the playwright essence of this yeah it's a fairy tale yeah yeah there's one movie in the 90s i can think of i'm trying to think of movies that are similar to this later after 1985 and there's one in the 90s with nicholas cage and bridget fonda called it could happen to you which is very similar i love that movie yeah, I'm actually in discussions to do a Staff Picks episode on that movie. It's very, very similar to this one. Well, if you need another person. <laughs> but yeah, so Max Dugan Returns, just one of those movies that can only exist in a certain place and time. Like the late 70s, early 80s, last movie of Neil Simon. Very, very fairy tale esque movie. And for some reason, everyone my age remembers this movie, even though they haven't seen it in like 30 or 40 years. So it's just one of those that I hope maybe people could go and, and seek out and maybe rediscover again and give it some love. Now, I know, Celia, you said it was available on Amazon? Yes, it is currently available on Amazon for a rental. I want to say it was like $3.99. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. And again, if you're a baseball fan at all, you should know this movie or at least know the baseball subplot because it's really distinct. Like... Charlie Lau was actually in a movie and he's like, he's not a bad actor. He's actually pretty good. And he'd never done anything like this before. No, but it can't be that hard acting the thing that you do for a living. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I mean, you know, there are, there are times when you get, you know, actual sports people up in a movie and there's, they're super flat. <laughs> Luckily this was not one of them. Yeah, and once again, you know, a great showcase for Jason Robards, one of my favorite actors from that era. I don't know Marsha Mason too well, but I think she's really good in this. Uh, I like Donald Sutherland in this. And again, this is Matthew Broderick's first movie. So if you like his career at all, go watch where it all started. This is his debut. 
Yes, that's what I was going to say. If you are at all a Matthew Broderick fan, um, absolutely go watch this. I believe Marsha Mason was also the mom in Drop Dead Fred. Oh, good. Yeah. I was just going to say, she reminds me of other similar actresses. So I, I get her mixed up with people. So like, I don't know off the top of my head what else, else she's been in. Yeah, so it's interesting um, because in, in Drop Dead Fred, she plays such a different character where she's a total bitch in that movie. Uh, and so, and, and she looks different too. She's styled really differently. Her hair is really different. Um, and so it, it kind of, it took, it caught me off guard and I had to like really look at her and I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's her. Um, so, you know, I, I am, I'm curious to, to go look up more stuff that she was in. Okay. Well, yeah, overall, this is just a movie that sort of mark, marks the end of an era, these, uh, movies based on plays, but it also marks the beginning of another era, which is the Matthew Broderick eighties movie. So it's kind of a neat little intersection right there between two eras. And I really would hope that, you know, people would listen to this episode and go out and watch. Uh, you know, it's just a movie I'm very proud to feature on Staff Picks. It was a special movie to me growing up, and it still is, to be honest. Like, when I watch Max Dugan Returns now, I'm like, yeah, I remember watching this movie, you know, tons of times as a kid. And I was a baseball player, and it, it just sort of inspired me. It's just, it's just a nice little inspiring fairy tale. I, I agree. I feel like this was also one of those special childhood movies for me. And um, uh, it, it's just, it is, it's just a, just a feel good movie. You know, if you're, this is, we're, we're still in the middle of a, of a tough time. Uh, the world is not a happy place to be. So, you know, if you're finding yourself on a, on a Sunday afternoon with a cup of tea and you need something to just like a warm blanket pop your Amazon on and throw this movie on. It's, it's, it's really, it's a lot of fun and it's very charming. Very well said. Yeah. I, I, I picked the perfect host for this episode. I, I found the one other person who could intelligently talk about Max Dugan returns. So I'm very happy you were here. Thanks. I, I am happy. I was here too. I had so much fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Anything else you want to say about this movie before we sign off and send the world out to Amazon Prime to go rent it and watch it? Um, no, other than, you know, yeah, just go go have fun. Go enjoy it. Enjoy the Neil Simon. Enjoy that. Enjoy that snappy dialogue. And see, this is where if, if I've written down more of snappy quotes, I would quote one of these things at the end. But I can't do that. So I've failed you as a host. I, well, I have failed you as a guest, so, um, you know, hey. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, everybody, thank you for listening to Staff Picks. Again, my name is Mario Lanza. Uh, if you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. That one was for you, Wittgenstein. Bye. They took my money, I took their money, and Sears Roebuck has our money. That is called circulating cash flow. That's how our economy operates.